family. There's different lines that you put all over this thing as you're mapping out your family line. And so as you do this, it's supposed to help you identify what are the patterns that have happened relationally throughout my life. And so here's an example of it, all right? Next image, there you go. This is not mine. This is Ross Geller from Friends, all right? This is Ross Geller from Friends. So I don't want to get into like the details. I can send this to you if you're interested, all right? Um, But essentially what I want you to see is all the different squiggly lines and everything of what this looks like as you work through it, all right? And so by the time that you do this, by the time that you chart out this genogram, you kind of come to a couple of different conclusions, all right? The first one is like, oh, now I see why, right? The things that you have felt maybe Throughout the course of your life and your family, you can begin to make sense of just the patterns that have been passed down for generations that you see from grandparents to your parents to you that you're maybe even without knowing it passing off to your very own kids. Or you might come to the realization, this is why I'm so jacked up, right? All the enmeshment, all the abuse, all the conflict, like these are all things that I've just, I didn't ask for, but I was born into, and now I'm having to like figure my way out of all of it, all right? And so tonight as we're coming to Genesis chapter 4, we're looking at a passage that focuses on two family lines, all right? The family line of Cain and the family line of Seth, and so What you should start to see from the very outset is that broken families did not start with you. (laughs) It did not start with your family, all right? From the very beginning, you see a lot of screwed up people amongst the very first family that populated this world. And so Cain, as we looked at last week, is the first son of Adam and Eve, Um, Seth, is the third son of Adam and Eve. So as we looked at last week, Cain took his brother Abel out to the field and out of jealousy, he struck down, he killed his younger brother. And so God in his kindness has supplied Seth to Adam and Eve after the loss of their son Abel. And so the author of Genesis, which is Moses, provides these family lines for us to see, one, how God's beginning to populate the world, all right? It is, there's a sense that this is provided for us so that we can see human history. But I think more importantly, what you see here through these family lines is not that Moses is communicating human history to us, but the human condition. He's communicating the human condition to us through these family lines. So through these two family lines, Moses highlights first the pattern of the human heart. We see the pattern of the human heart through the family line of Cain. We're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of this here in a moment. But in opposition to this, from the very beginning, this is the grace of God. We also see the pattern of God's kingdom. We see the pattern of God's people, and you see this through the family line of Cain. All right, So you see how jacked up we are through the family line of Cain. We're going to work through that, and you'll be able to identify things in your own heart through the family line of Cain. But then you also see a different framework that is present in Genesis chapter 4 for what we're going to see come to fruition in the New Testament through the life and work of Jesus. All right, You see the very beginnings, the framework, the foundation that's laid here in Genesis chapter 4. And so here's what I want to do. All right, I want to 
take time to look at these two different family lines for us to wrestle through these different patterns, the pattern of our human heart, as well as the pattern and the framework of God's kingdom, God's people that we see even here in Genesis chapter 4. And then we'll end by trying to connect these patterns and frameworks and themes to what God has been doing since the beginning of time. All right? Now, that seems like a lot. I promise you we'll get through it, and it won't be super late, all right? So <clears throat> here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the family line of Cain, all right? So we see this in verses 17 through 24. So I'm going to, there's three things that I want us to identify when it comes to the pattern of the human heart that I believe that Moses is trying to highlight for us as he's working through this genealogy, all right? So I'm going to read kind of verse by verse. I'm going to stop. We'll wrestle through it, and then we'll continue to move forward. All right, so verse 17 says this. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she, con- she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. All right, so here's the first thing that we see about the pattern of the human heart is that it is proud. The heart of the human is proud. Proud. So Cain is sent out to the land of Nod. If you remember last week, he strikes down his brother. His judgment by God is that he's going to be sent away from his family. He's going to be sent away from God's presence into the land of Nod, which is the place of wandering and estrangement. And then what do you see here in this very first verse, in verse 17? It's flourishing, which is odd, Right? That's not what you would expect. It's probably not the words that you expected to roll off of my lips as we are talking about what's the result that we see in Cain's life. But it's true. Cain is sent out from the presence of God. It says that he takes a wife. They have a son. Cain builds a city. And it's in this that we see the pattern of the human heart, which is pride. Now, you have to... In order to see it, you have to pay attention to the sequence events that happen here, all right? So Cain, just to rehearse the story, he takes his brother out to the field, kills him in jealousy. God confronts him. Cain has no remorse, takes zero responsibility for the consequences of his actions. God declares his judgment that he's going to be sent away. Cain says, this is too much for me to bear, I'm worried for my life that someone's going to come and try to strike me down as a result of what I have done. God places a mark and says that if someone were to strike you down seven times over would be the judgment on their own life. So he goes away. He takes, he finds a wife. We don't know where this wife comes from, um, but God provides him a wife. He has a son. He builds a city. And here's where you see the pride. Who does he name the city after? He names the city after his son. Cain is boasting here. Cain is saying, look at what I have accomplished. God in his judgment has cast me out, but who needs him? Look what I have produced from the result of my own hands. I've found a wife. I've started a family. I've erected an entire city. I have people that are going to flow out of my family line. And I've done all of this without God's help. That's what Cain is saying here as he names the city after his own son. And so look, 
What you need to see here is that Cain is ignorant of what people describe as God's common grace. All right, God's common grace is this very real reality that even in spite of our wickedness and sin, that in God's kindness and God's goodness, he still allows people to prosper here in this world. That there is still something, even for those that are, have rejected God and choose to walk in, uh, apart from him, that even in God's kindness and goodness, he's, they are still able to experience some measure of success and joy here in this life and in this world. This is different than God's saving grace, all right? God's saving grace is the is the thing where God opens the eyes of your heart to your own sin as well as God's holiness, and you see the great chasm that has been present there because of your sin. And in the midst of this, it brings this despair that draws you to the saving work of Jesus, where you thrust yourself at the hands and mercy of Christ Jesus. That's saving grace, all right? This Common grace is not salvific, but it is the experience of God's goodness here in this world. Here's how John Murray says it to try to bring it together. Common grace as an expression of the goodness of God is every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Now, to show you that I'm like, not making this up, nor is John Murray. You see this in Acts chapter 14. Paul has brought the gospel to the people of Lystra in Acts 14. They see some of the works that he has done and the things that he is communicating about God. They start to worship him. Paul says, I am not God, I'm just a mere man, but I come to communicate to you who this very God is. And as he is explaining about this God, here's what he says in verse 17. This God did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful season and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. This is God's common grace. And what Cain has ignored, what Cain has turned his eye to, is that even in the midst of his wickedness and sin, of striking down his brother, showing no remorse, taking no responsibility for his actions, God sends him out, and as he's sent out, that God still allow, allows Cain to prosper. That's what's taking place here. And instead of naming the city out of the kindness of God, he looks at the work of his own hands and says, this is what I have accomplished. This is what I have produced. I don't need God. And in light of all this, I'm naming the city after my own son that is bearing my name. That's what's happening here. And it reveals to us the first pattern of our heart, and it's that we are proud all right, look, none of us are above Cain here. In fact, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. I mean, if you step back and look at your family, oftentimes you look at, if you have kids, you step, and you step back and you look like, man, look what my wife and I have produced. Like, look at this home. If you, have, if you don't have kids, maybe, like maybe you're earlier in life, you, you step back and you look like, man, look at the scholarships that I have accomplished so that I can go to school. Look at the degrees by which I have accomplished throughout my life. Look at the career that I landed. 
look at the success that I found in that career as I've gotten promotions and worked my way up. Look at the art that I have created in my life as my walls are filled with all the different things that I have produced with my own hand. Look at the bank account that I have that's the result of all these things that my whole life's work has gone to. If I haven't hit your thing, you can fill it in with the blank. We have all done this. We have all stepped back and looked at our life and said, like, look at the work of my hands. I do this. All right? Here's our story. Like, my wife and I got married, and we struggled with infertility. We had two miscarriages before we had our oldest son. All right? There's times that I've stepped back, and it's like, look at what has happened. I have four boys now. I... I'm in ministry, right? Like that shouldn't be even named among me as I'm thinking about the work of my hands, the work and the job that I do. I've had people, I've, so, I've had so many, God's been so kind to me and people that have come behind me, supported me, really held me up, gave me opportunities that I never should have had at the age that I was in, all right? But there are some people, very, God's been kind to keep this a small amount, but there are some people that never thought that I would amount to anything when it came to trying to work within the church. You know what my heart is prone towards? Looking at that small minority and saying, look how I proved you wrong. Look, you do it too. We all do this. None of us are above Cain because look, this is the pattern of the human heart. We ignore the kindness and goodness, the common grace that God has shown us in this life, and it should show us how desperately wicked our hearts are. This is communicating the human condition, not just human history. It's speaking about us, speaking about you, speaking about me. That's just the first one, all right? So we see this pattern continue in verses 18 through 19. So here's what it says. This is where I'm going to start butchering the names. Carrot, you killed it. Great job. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. All right, here's where we see the second pattern. Verse 19. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Here's the, the second pattern of the human heart that we see here is that we, have, we are prone to alter God's design. We are prone to alter God's design. We see this through Lamech. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God's design for marriage. Pay attention to the singulars here in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, look, this what? This one. At last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This what? One will be called a woman, for she was taken from man. This, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and binds with his wife, singular, and they become what? One flesh. God's design. God's design for marriage. And what is said of Lamech? Lamech took two wives for himself. All right, this is a perversion of God's design for marriage. All right, now I'm anticipating some rebuttal, right? So 
What about the other people that have multiple wives? Like, aren't there people that we think highly of throughout the scriptures that had multiple wives? Like, I mean, what about them? Or wasn't it just a different time as if like God was making like this excuse for the taking on of multiple wives to populate the world? Well, if you step back and you look at these men that, yes, we do see them, they are communicated in some ways as being men of God. But every time that you look at the multiple wives situation, it's not viewed as something that is like this great thing that's allotted or applauded about them, all right? Abraham takes a second wife, and it is a, sh- a sign of his distrust of God's promise that he would provide a son. You have Jacob, that it's the deception of his father-in-law that he has two wives. You have David, it's an act of adultery that he has more than one wife. You have Solomon, and these multiple wives are seen as a part of his downfall throughout human history, throughout the course of scripture. Like these are not lifted up as these signs and symbols of like you need to do and follow how these men have carried out their life. They are actually... Signs that their lives have been made harder because of their sin. And then look, God didn't need our help to populate the world. There's, this isn't like an excuse that God brought about so that he could have help in populating the world. This very God that created something out of nothing does not need our help to make something of this world. He didn't need our help. All right, so this is, these excuses, these rebuttals, they don't make sense. This is a perversion of God's design for marriage. And look, we are accustomed to taking God's design and changing it according to our own desires. This is the pattern of our human heart. Here's just some examples, all right? They abound today. So the imagining and viewing acts of intimacy on a screen or what we read in a book is a distortion of God's design. The hookup culture of our society is a perversion of God's design. Acts of intimacy with a committed partner, even if it's a committed partner that happens before marriage, that is a a altering of God's design, all right? Cohabitation is an altering of God's design. Preference and orientation are a altering of God's design. Now, we could keep going, but I, I think you get the point. Do, do you hear me? You, you, like, you follow me? You tracking with me? All right? All of these are examples of how we have altered God's original design. Now, look, I know that this is a hot-button issue in our society. And there, in that list... Every single one of us in this room have fallen somewhere on that list, all right? So I know that I probably offended some, every single person that's in here, all right? I love you, all right? Listen to the tone of my voice. I love you. I do. I do not say these things out of a judgment on you or even me, all right? I'm not here casting judgment down on you. And it's not because of a lack of love that I communicate these things. It's because of a love that I communicate these things. Look, We have a Jesus that in his life and ministry confronted sin lovingly, all right? He confronted sin lovingly. If you look at John chapter 8, whenever the woman that's caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, Jesus meets her where she's at. She speaks into her life. He says, I do not cast 
condemnation on you. But what does he say in response to her? Go and sin no more. He lovingly confronts sin. Look, he calls the leadership in the church to do the very same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that we are to preach the word in season and out of season. That we are to encourage with the scriptures, but we're also to rebuke, we're to exhort, to, we're to anything that were to pop up into the life of the church that comes from culture, that is against the word of God. We are to stand before you faithfully and preach these things and not tickle your ear. Okay? So look, I'm not communicating these things as a lack of love. I'm communicating it out of a means of love because God's design is how he created us to flourish in this life. And anytime we oppose these things, we're actually working against the thing that we want deep down in our heart, which is flourishing and thriving in this world. So look, I bring this to you, not because I want to make you feel bad, but because I want to show you the way that Jesus has laid before us of how we actually experience fulfillment and, and flourishing here in this life. And, but look, it is the human pattern of our heart to take God's design and alter it because we think we know better. And we are confronted with this in the act of Cain's family, all right? So two hard things, right? We, the human pattern is that of a proud heart. The human pattern of the heart is also taking God's design and altering it. We've seen these things so far. We see the final pattern of the human heart in Lamech's song in verses 23 through 24. Here's what it says. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. The final pattern of the human heart that we see here in the line of Cain is that the human heart is inclined to diminish the value of human life. Lamech boasts about taking life in the song that he writes for his two wives. Cain's family line embraces his pattern to deeper levels than what Cain even exerted in his own life. So Cain at least feared God's authority whenever God came and, provoked and uh, confronted him about his own sin. At least there was a, a semblance of fear for the authority that God had over his life. Lamech completely ignores it. He denies any authority over his life. In fact, he takes up personal authority. So God is the one that gives this mark on Cain that anyone that would touch him seven times over what has happened to Cain. Lamech places his own authority that anyone that touches his life 77 times over. It's not the proclamation of God. This is out of the very lips of Lamech himself. And so again, we don't have to look very hard for ways that we as a culture, a human society, diminish the value of human life. Just go to the comment section of any social media. <laughs> right? Look, we diminish human life over the color of skin. This is part of the human history, like the human pattern or the, the pattern of our society that we are remembering tomorrow. 
in the womb, we diminish the value of life in the womb or outside of the womb, outside of the womb. We diminish life over political affiliations. We diminish life, the value of life um, over people's social issues, the positions that they take. I mean, this is what happens whenever we consider cancel culture. You're diminishing the value of another person's life. It doesn't have to be the actual striking down. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that when you foster hatred in your heart, even if it's not taken out on another person, that you have murdered them in your very own heart. Now, look, I promise you, it's not my goal every week to be the vacuum that I'm like sucking the breath out of this room. I promise you, right? Like, I am not trying to come in and be heavy every single week. I, I prayed as I was preparing this this week that God would give me this lighthearted text in the coming weeks, all right? Because I feel like it's been really intense and heavy over the last few weeks. But I do want us to be faithful to the scriptures and see the pattern of the human heart and where these patterns originated, all right? The Bible portrays a better pattern than the ones that we are prone to. We have to be honest and look at what our heart is prone to, but praise be to God that it doesn't end with the line of Cain. All right, so we get to move forward. We get to catch a glimpse of what these patterns look like in the final two verses of our passage. And so let's just rush right to it so we can kind of get, breathe some life back into this room because I feel like outside of like some scribbling that's happening on the front row, you could hear a, a pin drop and hit the floor, all right? So here's what I want us to do, all right? I want to hit these patterns um, that we see patterns of God's kingdom, patterns of God's people that we see through the line of Seth here. And then I want to end by tying it all together. So I kind of hit some application as we were working through Cain's line. I want to do that to tie the bow together after we work through Seth's line. All right, so here's the pattern of God's kingdom that we can see from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 4, we can see the very beginnings, the framework for God's kingdom, the framework for God's people and how they pattern their life out of the result of the line of Seth. And it starts in verse 25. So here's what it says. And now Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. I just poured water all over my Bible. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. All right? So here's the pattern of God's kingdom and its dependence. The first pattern of God's kingdom here we see is dependence. The patterns of Seth's family line are opposite of what you see with Cain's family line. So right off the bat, with the birth of Seth, we see this difference. Cain's boast was in himself, his personal provision. Look at the cities that I've erected. Look at the family that has come out of the work of my own hands. God has nothing to do with this. He cast me out of his presence, but look what has happened. I've flourished. What you see here is a boast in God and his provision in bringing about Seth after the loss of Abel. Cain names the city after his son. Eve names her third son God's provision. That's what, me, that's what Seth means here, that God has placed him. God has anointed him. God has provided him. This is what Seth means. You read uh, Eve's words, God has appointed. It's basically God has Seth, right? God has Seth for me, another offspring instead of Abel. So rather than independence, 
that we see in the life of Cain. I don't need God. Who needs God? Look at what I've produced by my own hands. You see what Eve says here by bringing about Seth, a complete dependence. God did this. God provided another son for us. God supplied. God spoke into the void in absence. God replenished where what was taken, he is now restored. He is provided again. So it's not who needs God, but what would I do without him is what you see here with Eve. All right. So the first pattern of God's kingdom is this dependence. And you see it here in Seth's line. There's a quiet confidence. It's not even quiet. There's this bold confidence in God's provision over personal provision here. But the second thing that we see in terms of the pattern of God's kingdom is that the second pattern is humility. We see this in verse 26. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. All right. So the naming of Seth's son is set in contrast to the names of Lamech's sons. All right, so all those really hard words that we said earlier. Um, so Jabal means productivity. This is what it says. He is the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So Cain looks, or Lamech looks at his son and he sees just how he produces. He's really efficient. He's really productive. Look at all he's produced. Look at all the things that he's done. And he names them in likeness of that. Then you see the second son, Jubal, which means uh, he's the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. He's the originator of music. Lamech's like, look, we're producing culture here. Like the fineness and beauty of this world, we're providing it, we're producing it. And he names his second son after that. And then you see the third son, Tubal Cain, which is a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Essentially saying like, my son is a metal worker. Look, he's taken the things of this world and he's constructed something by which we can actually perform our work to higher means and he's the one that originated it. He's the one that thought of it. He's the one that produced it. He's the one that's allowed us not to just do what my father Cain has done, but look at the measure by which we're advancing because of what the work of my sons are doing. And then you get the contrast of Seth naming his son Enosh. And what does it mean? Weakness. Enosh means weakness. The line of Cain, it's... He's basically saying, look at what we can accomplish. Look how good we are. We don't need God. We don't need anybody. We can produce things out of our own hands. And then you have the line of Seth in complete contrast to that that recognizes their place before a, a huge and mighty God. Seth stepping back, seeing the common grace of God recognizing the work that God has done throughout the course of the creation of this world, throughout the course, even his own life. Then he names his son Enosh. He is recognizing that he is small. He recognizes his place before a huge, mighty, creating God is what you see here. It's a humility completely different than what you see with the line of Cain. And then lastly, we see in ver the very end of verse 26, the last pattern, the pattern of God's kingdom is surrender. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
and we're to compare this to Lamech's song. What happened in Lamech's song? Lamech sings of his personal authority, how he has taken a man's life. God gave Cain a promise seven times over, and I, I named my own 77 times over for anybody that would have tried to take my life. This is the pride, arrogant song, the authority, personal authority that Lamech takes. But the utterance of Enosh's lips is prayer calling upon the name of the Lord. So it's not a declaration of personal authority, but it's a surrender of personal authority that you see here at the very end of verse 26. So, all right, these are the patterns, all right? The patterns of God's kingdom is that there's a dependence, right? That there is a humility and that there's a surrender that happens in the life of God's people in the midst of God's kingdom. And so, This is all a foreshadowing of how God works throughout the course of human history and redemptive history, as well as how God's people function under his rule in this life. From the very beginnings, we're seeing the framework for God, how God is going to accomplish the promise that he gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. We're going to see how he's going to bring that to fruition. But then we also see from the way that Jesus comes and communicates his kingdom to his followers, how from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 4, how they are to function under his rule and his authority here in this world. All right? So the, here's the first thing. God fulfills his promise, look, through weakness, not strength, through foolishness, not wisdom. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. Here's what he says in verses 22 through 25. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. All right, so stop there. This is the pattern of Cain. The Jews seek signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews ask for signs because they want God to prove himself. They are the ones, they are that as if they, they have achieved something in their life. They're saying, God, you need to prove yourself to us. Give us a sign. Show us that you're actually going to bring this to fruition. We need, you have to come and give us an account rather than us coming to give you an account. Give us, an, give us a sign. The Greeks, also in the line of Cain, they need wisdom because they believe in human ability and human accomplishment. All right? We can do anything we put our minds to. If we really think hard enough, if we really put to action the things that we know and the things that we have learned over the course of human history, we are clever enough to figure this thing out. How could God not want somebody like us that has, ex- that has surpassed all other human history and we can use this wisdom that we have collected in order to learn our way into the very presence of God. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But how does God fulfill his promise? The cross. Verse 22, but we preach Christ crucified. Look at this, a stumbling block to the Jews and the foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews because it's too weak and it's too foolish. In a world full of Cain, we don't comprehend the sacrifice that happened on the cross. It does not compute with a world full of Cain's. A people that look at our hands and say, what have we accomplished? We don't need God. Look what we've done apart from his presence. These people view Jesus as a stumbling block or they view him as foolishness. But look in verse 24, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those 
like Eve and Seth and Enosh, those who see themselves properly, see their sin and see the glory and the holiness of God and the great chasm that has been produced there because of our sin, those who have come to the ends of themselves and thrust themselves before this Jesus in utter dependence of the work that he alone can do for us, that there's nothing, we come to the ends of ourselves and see that there's nothing that I can produce in my life. There's no human accomplishment. There's no achievement. There's no working my way back out. There's no making up for my sacrifice. There's no making up for the lackings that I have produced in my life. I need a savior that can come and deal with these patterns of sinful, wicked human heart that resides in me. If I come to the end of myself and I thrust myself at this Jesus, he is willing to save. He has the power. He has the, he is the power. He is the wisdom of God. And it all comes to fruition in the cross. It's not human strength. It is human weakness. It is foolishness to those, but it's the wisdom of God. Not only do we see by how God brings about the fulfillment of his promise, which is the cross of Christ, but we also see the pattern of God's people here, and it's a life of surrender, all right? In Cain, you see a life of self-promotion. In the life of Seth, you see a life of self-denial. And we see this in Jesus' instructions to his disciples throughout the course of his ministry. So think, think about it with me in Mark chapter 10. So James and John come up to Jesus, and what do they ask of Jesus? Can we sit at the, re- the left and right hand of you at the king- in the kingdom of God? Jesus responds, that's not my position to give. The di- rest of the disciples get furious with both James and John just because they beat him to the punch, right? Like they just, they want the same thing. They're jealous that they didn't think about and come and ask Jesus about this before James and John did. And how does Jesus respond in the midst of like all the chaos and dysfunction that's happening with the disciples? We see it in verses 42 through 45. So Jesus, seeing what's happening amongst his disciples, invites the rest of the crowds to come in and hear because this is a teaching moment for all. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So this is the way of the world of Cain's. Look at the accomplishment of my hands. I ascend to positions of power, and then I, I, I cause them to come and work for me. They must bow their knee to me. I need acclaim. I need praise. I need glory. But it is not so among you, for those that follow me, for those that declare themselves as part of God's people, for those that have trusted in me, for those that have followed me, for those that have entered into the kingdom through me. It is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is ultimately saying the pattern of this world, the pattern of the Cain's, is not the pattern of my kingdom. To function in my kingdom, to function as my family, is to actually function in complete opposite of it. 
And our example is Jesus himself, he says. Look at me. I didn't come here to be served. I came to lay my life down for you. I came as a servant to you. The one that came to serve you in a way that no one was capable of doing before me. No one was even willing to do this. Even if they were capable, no one else would be willing to do this for you because of the offense of your sin to the living God. But me, I have come to serve you in this way. And those that are to be a part of my kingdom follow my pattern. It's not a pattern of self-proclamation. It's a pattern of self-denial. I serve. I give my life away for other people. I love how Fred Craddock illustrates what this looks like for us so well. So um, he says oftentimes we view this idea of surrendering and giving our life to Jesus as this like glorious, momentous act. God's going to accomplish something really huge, something really large through me if I give him my all. And so he equates it as if like we bring a thousand dollar bill and lay it on the table before God and say, here's my life. I'm giving it all. Do something magnificent with it. But the reality for most of us is that God sends us back to the bank and he has us cash the thousand dollar bill for quarters. And so we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. And he gives this illustrate a few different ways that um, he kind of foresees this in the way that we live our life. It's like we're giving our 25 cents to the neighborhood kid that comes to us with his troubles rather than just brushing him off and going throughout our day. That we give the widow next door to us our 50 cents. The, the widow that is often forgotten by this world that her cares aren't, her needs aren't met. She has no one to talk to. She has no person that is walking through this life giving any care or concern for her own life. It's giving the 75 cents to the elderly man in the nursing home by giving him a cup of water, taking a seat, and hearing his life story. A lot of times, laying your life, a life of surrender, doesn't look like going and doing these big, audacious, bold things for God. For some, that is his will, but oftentimes the pattern is the giving away, the nickeling and diming away your life for those that oftentimes are forgotten. And here's how he ends it. He concludes it. He says, usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time, it would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little, little over the long haul. The life of the kingdom is a life of surrender, but it probably looks different than what you have in your mind. Our, our American society wants to have the acclaim and we want to ride it on the coattails of Jesus. I'm going to, God's going to do something big for me. But oftentimes, we really aren't doing it for the name of Jesus. We just want the glory and acclaim that come by doing and laying down our life for Jesus. And so we need to see that there's, oftentimes it looks different than what we think. It's not the $1,000 bill. It's the 25, 50 cent, 75 cents that go over the course of our whole life a laying down a life of surrender on a regular daily basis for the long haul you see all right so 
Genesis chapter 4, do you see the framework of God's kingdom here? The contrast between the family line of Cain and Seth, do you see it? Foolishness over wisdom, weakness over strength, greatness through service, gaining through losing. From the very outset of Scripture, we see the framework of God's kingdom here before us is not just something that Jesus comes and brings in the New Testament. This is something that God's been putting into the works from the very beginning. So the question at the end of the story for all of us is whose line am I going to follow? Am I going to follow in the line of Cain? I'm going to boast in the work of my hands. Who needs God? Look what I've accomplished. Look at the things that I've surmounted in my life. I have big ambitions. I have big goals. I'm going places. Look what I'm going to do. This is like the American dream that we rise from, some, from nothing to something and that we get the claim of all the world. But Jesus says that doesn't exit the world with you. So are you going to be in the line of Cain or are you going to be in the line of Seth? Dependence. Humility, surrender, weakness, foolishness, giving my life away, service, laying it down. Which line are you going to take? Look, one comes out of your own hands. The other one is the saving and redeeming work of Jesus that breaks the pattern of the human sin and brokenness in your life. If you want the Seth line, then it's coming to the end of yourself, thrusting yourself at this very Jesus who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He breaks the pattern and the slavery of sin in your life, and he produces a freedom that through the work of the Spirit frees you to walk in obedience, to give your life away, to be a people of service to be a people that view this world in a different light. If you want the line that lasts for eternity, it starts with coming to this Jesus that is the foolishness of the world, that is the stumbling block to the world, and you say, you're my only hope. Amen? Let's pray.